Welcome to Family Financial Feuds from the University of Illinois Extension. Welcome back to another episode of Family Financial Feuds. This is your host, Sasha Grobensetter, Consumer Economics Educator with the University of Illinois Extension. And today we are doing something very different. For the first time ever, we are adding a guest to the podcast. Shocking, I know. Kathy and Kamaya and I decided to switch it up since I'm going on maternity leave in early May. And we wanted to give you some financial feud topics that we've been wanting to share, but we didn't want to share our guests. So we decided to do them individually. Um, So let me please introduce to you Emily Cushel. She is an assistant professor of human development and family studies at Michigan State University. She recently completed her PhD in the applied family science at K-State University. She also has her master's um, in personal financial planning from Texas Tech University. And if you know anything about me, that's where I'm from too. So that's where I'm at, Emily. So coupled with her master's in personal financial planning from Texas Tech University, her research interest is centered on financial transparency among intimate partners and the role of financial socialization, communication, and trust. Emily has extensive financial experience. She served as a financial counselor in developing financial education and curriculum for couples and students, but we'll talk more about that later. She currently is an active member in the Association for Financial Counseling, Planning, and Education, AFCPE, the Financial Therapy Association, and the National Council on Family Relations. Emily currently teaches undergrad courses at Michigan State. Basically, Emily is a baller, and you should be excited that she is on today. Emily, welcome. Thank you, Sasha. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for the invite. Yes, I'm so excited. So one other thing you all should know is that when you're talking, when you're listening to Emily and I, Emily is my best friend, and I'm really excited to have her on. Uh, Emily was my one of my bridesmaids in my wedding. We've known each other for close to a decade almost now. Wild. Um, I know. Um, we became friends because we were both at Texas Tech, and we both were these Midwestern girls. And I heard that there was this girl who came from the Midwest, and they were like, she went to, to one of the Kansas schools. And I was like, no, because I went to Mizzou. And long story short, we found that she went to K-State instead. And so I was like, it's okay. We can be friends. So that's how it happened. So So today we're going to talk a lot about Emily's research because Emily has done a lot of really great research in financial transparency, kind of defining it for us, you know, kind of making it applicable for everybody, which is kind of cool. So not only have you made research and let everyone know about it, you also have created this tool for everyone to use. So I'm excited to dive into it today. Yeah, me too. Okay, Emily, so my first question is, why why financial transparency? What made you want to research this topic? Financial transparency. I think a lot of why researchers do what we do is the observation of our experiences and those around us. And it was very much the same for me. I had the opportunity to work with some clients and, of course, have my own observations just from friends and family and noticing a communication disconnect when it came to finances. Uh, there, there is quite the narrative out there that says that we should talk about finances. We know that it's important. Uh, several data points about why we need to have good financial management, specifically when we're looking at couples. Mm-hmm. But with this, we didn't really have a tool to assess that. So previous research really shows that good financial management, good financial practices leads to um, increased 
relationship satisfaction, but we needed a way to assess how we talk about finances because that type of communication is very specific. So not to jump too far ahead, but financial transparency and the way that uh, we've, we've defined this is the open and honest disclosure of finances, but emphasis on honest. So openness and transparency, those often go hand in hand. The honesty piece is really where we needed to dive in because again, this communication with finances is, is different than communicating about a lot of other topics. So within financial transparency, we needed a way to assess this. Um, and again, specifically honesty or maybe even the lack thereof. So I guess my other, like to follow up that question, like, because, you know, if you listen to our podcast, people who listen to us know that we like to define terms. So I love that you define what financial transparency is for our listeners. But, you know, I, I think that you kind of, I'm curious, like, because in my life, you know, I have a spouse who is a financial planner and this is normal, normal conversation between us, open and honest, mostly honest. We'll talk more about that later. Transparency. But I, you know, like for most normal people, like this is a really uncomfortable conversation. And I think that. I don't know. I love that you, this is something that like really you push for to do. So. Yeah. So I think you make a great point. There is, you know, a suggestion to a lot of financial conflict that simply says, well, just talk more and communicate more openly (laughs) with your partner. And it just seems like a very simple, straightforward solution. And honestly, we could do that with several topics, but you made a good point that oftentimes around finances, there is, conflict. Um, There can be tension. There can be a perception of inequality or power imbalance. Mm -hmm. And so when we tell people, hey, just be transparent and just talk about it, it's that simple. We're not really giving them the correct tools to be able to engage in these conversations. And in a lot of ways, kind of setting them up for, for failure by saying, oh, well, I brought it up and we crashed and burned. And so we tried. I take a lot of time to kind of draw on the work of Sandra Paternio, and she looks at communication privacy management. And within her research, she actually suggests that maybe 100% transparency and self-disclosure is not appropriate all the time. Whoa, right? Like, back up. Did you just say <laughs> that? Let's be honest. Like, yeah. <laughs> to not disclose everything. Yes, and, and no. So there's, there's this process to disclosing private information. And really, that's where we need to, um, we need to, to focus our efforts. So she does a really great job of, of giving us a visualization for this and suggesting that we essentially erect a metaphoric boundary for ourselves with private information. And we set our own rules and our own criteria to help control and regulate the information or the flow of private information that I offer to somebody. The extent to which my partner reacts to receiving this private and intimate information that I see as being satisfactory Mm -hmm. will help determine our boundary coordination. So if I tell you something personal and private specifically regarding my finances, and you take that in a way that I find to be acceptable, I'm now going to start slowly loosening up those boundaries and giving you more information. So partners are starting to balance this autonomy. So being independent and individual 
and starting to increase my intimacy by actually sharing this with my partner. That's the really tricky part because we are being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It is risky. And we're not quite sure if, if we can trust the other person that we're giving that information to. Yeah. Well, I think you make a good point. Like in earlier, you were talking about like the couples and, and like, but we come from such different backgrounds financially, right? You know, like I plan to, to raise my child differently and have this conversation about, you know, like what money is and all of that. So like they have a conversation, but like, as you know, and that we learned when we were at Texas Tech about money scripts and like learning, like, how does that influence who we are? That piece of it can really, I think not necessarily mess you up as an adult, but if you have a negative, terrible money script, I think that that is brought out more in when you bring the finances together, right? And then the other piece I think that's interesting is that, you know, the opposite of vulnerability is shame, right? And shame, there's a ton of shame around money. So I think that, you know, you make up some, you get, you have some really good points about it. And the other parts of research also validate those things. So I think that's really great, Emily. Yeah, I think you make a, 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 or bring up a really great point regarding money shame, because oftentimes in this, this disclosure around finances, unfortunately, we've made some mistakes. For some, the implications of the mistakes may be far less severe than others. The other side of this is I need a partner who's going to be able to receive what I perceive as shameful behavior and accept that to a certain extent. You know, maybe not necessarily agree with it, but accept it. And we need to coordinate these boundaries to come together. So where I feel comfortable giving this information to them. Uh, You referenced the work of uh, doctors at Quants. And so they're talking about within those money scripts that we've actually developed our values and our inherited truths. These inherited truths then make up our normative expectancies. So this is what I perceive as a normal conversation or Um, normal financial management. And that's stemming from our relationship with money as a young person, like you were talking about. So that socialization that we brought into our relationship, I'm now going to share that with my partner. We're going to try to figure out what is our new normative expectation for our relationship, because I've got my individual one, but now we need to bring those together somehow. And it can be really hard to bring them together. And I think, you know, if you are a person who has a lot of financial shame or mistakes in their past, it could be a deal breaker for some individuals, right? Like um, one of our very first podcasts, Kamaya and I did, we talked about, you know, should you show your partner, you know, each other, your your credit history and score. And we brought your um, financial transparency up. But I think that one of the things that we talked about more was in that podcast was just kind of like really focusing on like, are there deal breakers? Like, and I'm not saying on the first date you should show somebody your credit report or score because that's that's kind of weird. Let's be honest. I'm like, I, guess, I guess unless you're both financial planning students, right? Um, but like we were. But I think that if you give somebody that and they don't accept you, it's really hurtful. So I can see why people make why, why this financial transparency needs to have some kind of way to talk about it, right? Like we, I've made jokes. Uh, with practitioners around bringing up credit reports and credit scores very early on in relationships. And again, there is a lot of shame behind some of that because 
you may be somebody who just started establishing your credit history and it may look uh, you know, very different from somebody else who was an authorized user or co-signer very early on and had a parent to help support that score and, and other variables. And so there's, there's a lot to be brought to that conversation. Oh, definitely. So back to your research though. So what were some of the um, like really shocking or like interesting findings that came out from your research that I know our listeners want to hear about? So I think one of the the light bulb moments, one of the biggest takeaways that I found from financial transparency, and we touched on this just a moment ago, is that maybe it's not appropriate to say we need financial transparency 100% of the time, every single time. So this may not be as widely accepted, but I think there are a lot of cases for uh, selective self-disclosure. And a lot of that starts with, we need to really identify some of these individual financial socialization. Maybe it is not appropriate to assign 100% uh, complete openness every single time in our relationships. So while we know that regulating disclosure of the private information can be more productive for a successful relationship, I think it's more about the communication boundaries and the private information. So. I guess, Emily, one of the things I, so I was looking at, you know, looking at financial transparency and looking over your research. And one of the things that I noticed, and this is not um, a knock on your research, was that mostly you, you looked at heterosexual couples. I was just curious, like, you know, where does, like, do you, are you doing a follow-up study? Are you thinking about doing like one for same-sex couples or even couples who are just living together who aren't potentially married? Yeah. So I would love to. Absolutely. Um, For the purposes of the pilot study, we had to make a more limited sample just to to test some of this information. But absolutely, would love to do a follow-up study with same-sex couples, same-sex married couples, uh, those who are just simply living together or in a committed relationship and look at the different dynamics that exist within those relationships, specifically for these social and cultural variables that are there to be explored. So just off the top of my head, thinking of traditional earning roles, the wage gap, or better yet, the, the wealth gap that exists. Yes. Um, those that, uh, the roles that we have between men and women and the expectations there with same-sex females and then couples of color, there is so much work to be done to continue to explore this because there are a lot of additional implications and pressures that I don't think are, are identified in this initial study, but this tool will allow us to help start those conversations. So I guess to follow up on that question, sorry. Yeah. Um, like, do you expect things to be different when you look at couples of, you know, different races or, you know, different gender or, you know, same genders? Like, do you expect there to be a difference? Because I know that from your study, it was typically like the one spouse who was like saying for both, right? Or like, what was their example? So I'm just curious, like, do you think that there'll be a change? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. I would hypothesize a change in any one of these variables. For instance, we know that um, more often you're going to see parents or parental figures have conversations with young boys more often than they will with young, young females. Um, and so a lot of that still hinges on the, the social, press, social pressures of the male being the provider and being the income earner, 
traditionally we use the term breadwinner yeah. and we don't often give the same information to little girls for not taking them to the banks and starting the checking accounts and having these conversations in the same way. So I think inherently so we would see differences. We also know that there are differences with social mobility, and this mm-hmm. is going to come through um, some of our, our cultural contexts and for marginalized populations, social mobility is going to play a really big role. I think one of the other populations I would want to explore is those who may be situated in lower socioeconomic statuses okay. because this may look very different. In speaking to actually my own family, to my parents when I was starting this research and asking them about financial transparency, I vividly remember my mom saying, we didn't have the option to not be financially transparent. We would have failed. We Mm -hmm. had to disclose every single dollar or we would not pay the bills. We would not be able to provide for our children. So that could look very different from those who have resources. And I would be really interested to see the differences and the similarities in either one of those situations. So basically just shout out, if you have lots of grant funding, find Emily, please. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Because I'm excited. I'm excited to, you know, like whatever future studies that you can do that, you know, we, I think the information needs to be out there. So I think the one thing we kind of like touched on earlier and you kind of talked about this was just like that your findings that you're like, you know, the, that financial transparent or even just transparency, like this is a feud in many households. That's, you know, like we're family financial feuds. Like that's what we talk about is these feuds. Like, why do you think that this is a feud in many households other than, you know, the things kind of we've already talked about, but like, what else can we add to this? So, so we know that finances are intimate and oftentimes we'll see people not want to participate in those conversations based off of their financial socialization, of course. So the conflict and um, these feelings of disclosing intimate information. I think the other side of this is that we haven't necessarily been given the proper education to engage in this type of communication with one another. Mm -hmm. How do we do that appropriately, safely in a um, healthy dialogue? I don't know that we've been given those tools and those resources as individuals. Again, I think we're often just told that we need to talk, but we don't really know how to navigate that. The other side of this is something that we haven't talked about so much is power. That through self-disclosure and specifically financial self-disclosure, there can kind of bring this can bring to the surface the power dynamics within the couple. Yeah. Uh, whether that's a perception of unfairness or perception of inequality or even more so that there is explicit inequality. So those conversations are a whole other line of, you know, how do we how do we talk about that appropriately? And trust, do you trust your partner? So much of this is fundamentally going to start with the trust in your partner and the willingness to participate and to have a reciprocal communication about it. Okay, so let me ask this. Yeah. I know that you worked on a curriculum. Does that curriculum help to start to build some of those tools that needs to start happening with couples as they move forward to make their lives more serious, whether that's moving in together, getting married, you know, long-term commitment partner, like I just. Yeah. So I think that's a really great point because a lot of where 
myself and the uh, my co-authors would want to see this tool used is in, you know, probably presumably uh, pre-relationship, pre-marital education conversations, but also practitioners that are working in financial therapy and financial counseling. But to to your point with the curriculum, um, I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Uh, Sonia Luter and Kamala Hazelwood, and we developed a curriculum that was called Love and Money. And we take couples through, uh, it, it started out as an eight-week course, and we, we brought it down just a bit. We really emphasize the different dimensions of money, mm-hmm. the spiritual side of money, the practical side of money. But one of the very first conversations that a couple will have within that curriculum is looking at their financial socialization. So we use play therapy, which is really cool. Yes. Oh and sorry. We, yeah, no, <laughs> love I it. Love it. So exciting. It's fantastic. Play therapy is, is fascinating. Play therapy really allows us to open up a whole different side of ourselves that I don't think we access enough. So our couples, we, we told them, here's some Play-Doh and we want you to, to separately, they're not looking at one another, but to mold your first money memory or the most significant memory you have of money. And what we know is that by playing with the Play-Doh, this gives us that childlike feel. It's going to start engaging our memory. We also know that the sense of smell is really important when we're going back to memories. Oh yeah, definitely the Play-Doh smell. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Right. Most of us have had that experience. And so the, the partners will mold that and they'll build that. And I think what's most interesting is within those conversations, partners that had been together for, for several years, they were married and, you know, built lives together. They were telling each other stories that they'd never heard. Out of them centered around, oh, I saved up for money or saved up my money for this particular item or worked hard for it or I really wanted it. Um, it was something that was given to me by a family member. And now we were bringing up financial socialization in a fun way and in a safe way and through storytelling and playing with something. And it wasn't so much, hey, tell me about your financial past and what did your parents tell you or what was that environment? This was just a, you know, a softer approach to those conversations. And I think that's the thing that people really need to be mindful of when they're having these conversations, right, with finances because it brings out obviously lots of emotion and you have to make it so that it's an easier way to have these discussions. So thank you for sharing that. I love that. I'm literally going to make my spouse, we're going to do it. I'm going to do it. Like what's your first money memory? I feel like I do know that for him, but I think it'll be really fun. Yeah. Um, so one of the other questions I had for you, because this was something that really interested me, like the more I read about your research was how often does financial secrecy like really did it really like rear its ugly head in your um in your scale like in your you know in your research so um actually kind of drawing on some of the experiences that I had with those couples and going through that curriculum is where I got more qualitative data to be able to speak to this uh, in the in the quantitative side in the scale development we don't we didn't see it as much or it wasn't um, at the forefront of, of the research agenda. But in having conversations with couples, there are, in my opinion, kind of two, two sides to financial secrecy. 
And I think it's really important to say that financial secrecy is not always bad. So again, this just bear with me for a second, because I know that sends out some, some big signals. But so when it comes to financial secrecy, I think there's one, this side where there is an intent to hide money or purchases for a personal agenda. And this could be that I don't trust my partner's financial management. Um, Maybe I'm wanting to leave my partner. Maybe I'm trying to gain or maintain some type of financial power, those, those type of initiatives. The second side is really just a lack of communication and boundary coordination. So not having a firm understanding of what your money boundaries are with one another. And so you feel as though keeping a financial secret or hiding a purchase from your partner isn't really the worst thing, right? Like I'm not trying to hurt my partner and there's no malice intent here. Rather, I'm simply looking for some type of expression of autonomy. I really like this item or I really want to engage in this opportunity and it's important to me. And so I decide to hide it or my partner is going to be upset, but it's not that big of a deal. And I've decided that just not telling them is the better option. That's completely different than I'm putting money aside to exit my relationship Mm -hmm. and a personal agenda. So there's really kind of two, two sides of financial secrecy in, in my opinion, from what I see. No, that makes sense. I think, um, you know, I think a lot of times when we, when you say the term financial secrecy or anyone does, I think that that first, that first one, the intent to like, you know, exit a a relationship or um, leave, uh, leave it or, you know, do something harmful to the marriage, like, like overspending or even gambling, like that's where I think of it. But I think, you know, I think it it really does is that lack of, like you said, that lack of communication and that boundary coordination, like, like I can talk about this because I I can, um, you know, I really become obsessed with recently as an educator, you know, one of the things I do is, you know, I take out, I take information and I, and process it. And then I spit it back out to people because what extension does. Right. Yeah. But one of the things I have noticed is that there's these new payment methods and they're called, um, they're called, one is called uh four pay and that one's through PayPal. And then there's another website called Afterpay. And so like, normally if I make we, my husband and I make, you know, we make purchases, right. But if I make a purchase over, let's say a hundred dollars, like I have to kind of like, okay, it with him or whatever, but I've been, I'm going to be real honest. I've been getting away with making a little bit larger purchases, like closer to like maybe 150, maybe 185 and not having to tell him because I've been using this, this product <laughs> after pay. And I'm not trying to, you know, um, hide it from him or have any kind of ill intent. I just, am like, well, I just, you know, it's, it's paid off in four payments. It's fine. Like, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I think that this happens more often than not, you know what I mean? But I think when I looked at your scale and I'm looking at like the questions about it, like these are some legit, like kind of scary questions, I think, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Like, do you lie to your partner about financial transactions? Uh, you know, like my answer would be like, you know, like not likely, maybe somewhat likely, you know, looking at your Likert scale, um, lie about a purchase to your partner. Definitely done that <laughs> in my past, you know, and even now, like I just made a purchase the other day and, you know, but because it's split up into four payments, it doesn't look as large, mm-hmm. right. Over the, you know, six weeks or whatever that's getting paid off. Right. So 
it's, I think it's an interesting tool and I think more people are going to be using it and I'm going to talk more about it probably on a future podcast, but I think that's, it's, it's just really interesting to like, think about. Yeah. I think the idea of setting in place spending protocols is mm. something that's very normal and natural in relationships. Oftentimes we'll see uh, partners set a dollar limit. This is this is quite normal in my observations of couples and, and conversations with uh, friends and family that there's exactly what you mentioned, a dollar amount. And this yes. is the point where we have a conversation and anything under this, we don't have to have a conversation. The loophole is to keep several purchases under the dollar amount so we can avoid the conversation, right? Yes. There is, there's, you know, a workaround here, but then it just comes back to, a a conversation of is the protocol in place for financial alignment, meaning are we trying to keep our budget in a certain place or is the spending protocol in place because we don't value money the same way and I want to avoid the conversation of this misalignment that you're not going to recognize that this purchase is important to me or it's something that I want or it's fulfilling in another way. Is it a value misalignment or is it that we really need to stick to this financial budget and this dollar amount to make sure that we can continue our our lifestyle and maybe save for future goals and and other implications of of keeping a good budget. I love it. I'm just so excited about this. Um, I guess another question that I have is how would you like to see your research in financial transparency kind of like used in the future? Because you do have um, on your, you know, at the very end of your research article, there is the actual scale um, that people can look up and use if they'd like. And I'm just curious, like, how do you, how do you foresee this in the future being used? Like, or how do you want this to be used by professionals? Because I'm sure that there are tons of listeners either listen to us for the first time or listen to us normally who are, you know, financial educators, professionals, professors, financial planners, you know, who would love to know how to use this scale. Thank you for asking that, because I think that, you know, without finding a way to utilize research, we aren't really doing ourselves a service, right? Like we have these really great findings and we find these tools, but what if nobody picks them up? So let's give them some really direct information yes. of how they yes. can use this. Uh, bridging bridging the gap, as AFCP once said. Yes, bridging the gap. Eating the broccoli. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, from Dr. Uh, Houston and Dr. Luter, I believe, yep. from mm-hmm. that conversation. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, shout out to them. They are wonderful. Uh, <laughs> but so how do we actually use this information? So we've developed a tool and the tool should, I should caution that it should be used for those who are ready to take a deep dive into this personal information. Because as you pointed out, we're asking about your likelihood to buy or keep a financial secret. And a side note to that, I think of it as going to a doctor. You need to give all of the information to properly diagnose the relationship and the communication. And if you leave that out. But people don't do that either, Emily. <laughs> it's true, but we're really just setting ourselves back then if we're not willing to be transparent. And there has to be an established kind of safety, like an, an environment of, of being safe and looking at it to say, yes, we're going to talk about really hard things, but it's in our best interest to do this so that we can move forward and really move forward, not just talk about it. Back to how I'd like to see this used in the future. 
This rule is really great for those who are looking to um, capture financial communication and financial transparency in their curriculums. So maybe mm-hmm. this is for relationships that are committed relationships. Maybe that commitment looks like marriage. Maybe it looks like we're moving in together. This is a tool to kickstart the deep, that deep relationship with money that we all have and a way to start talking about it. Future researchers can use this in several different ways. And we talked about uh, the different social and cultural implications of different populations. I think that this could be easily applied in those scenarios. Um, I also think that if you feel ready to, and I I talked about maybe not having all the proper tools and, and education behind it. But if you feel ready to, you could use this with your partner and mm-hmm. sit down and start the conversation that can be really hard to do. Or maybe the conversation always comes up around the first of the month when we're paying bills. Maybe mm-hmm. this is another way to have the conversation about finances that isn't at a heightened time of financial conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, in our curriculum, we talk about that as well, that really setting a date and a time to have these these conversations and communications is really important. So yeah. not when somebody is getting off work and coming in and stressed out, that's not the right time to say, hey, let's sit down it's and not. talk okay. about our financial communication <laughs> and uh, whether or not you've lied to me because I found a fake statement that you know I'm upset about. Yeah. So yeah, I think that this could be used in curriculums. I think it's appropriate for financial counselors, planners, therapists, uh, researchers, and really just for anybody who is looking to start having those. So let me ask a more applicable question. Yeah. And I, I asked this because I'm just curious, like, how would it look like? So I sit, I'm a financial planner and I sit mm-hmm. down with a couple who I've been meeting with for, let's say, you know, three or four years. I have a, an established relationship yeah. with them. Right. And, you know, there's some conflict around money. Do I pull this tool out and have them each do it? Do I have them do it together and talk about it? Like, how does how does how do you envision it working? So, if I'm with an established client and specifically an established couple, and I'm sensing that there's something else happening here that is outside of the ones and zeros, outside of the numbers, and I'm needing to assess that, I think that it's appropriate to either assign this as homework or maybe assign it within the office. My initial suggestion would be to do this separately because we talked about the money shame, because we talked about needing to be honest. I think that it's important that this is done individually. It's then given to the financial planner, financial professional to assess that and see the assess the severity. What are the conversations that potentially need to happen here? For a financial planner specifically, they may not have the appropriate training for the conversations that come along with this assessment. And at that time, it may be appropriate to refer to a financial counselor, therapist, psychologist, depending on what they're seeing um, in the results. There may be conversations that lend themselves more to the financial practices piece, which is, Mm -hmm. are you looking at your statements together? Are you budgeting together? But if you're finding that there's a lot of financial secrecy or problems with disclosure, that to me seems like it may have roots for a different financial professional to to help with first 
And then let's get into the numbers because you may make no movement forward if we haven't addressed what's lying beneath the surface. Okay, thank you. I just wanted to hear from you, like what does that tool look like? Because I've been thinking about, you know, ways to use this tool, right? Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I've been wanting to do with our Money Mentors program is to actually have them kind of do a self-assessment themselves just to see where they are. And then they they could use your tool with their, you know, um, their money mentees, their people that they're helping out in our communities. So I just see a lot of ways for it to be used. And um, I'm just really excited about the future of like, where does this go? But also that like that applicableness that is, I think needs to be out there because you're right. Research, once it's done, it just sits sometimes. And I don't want your research to sit. So Hence, we're having this conversation. (laughs) I appreciate that. And I I think it's really important that researchers make those connections. And it's important to have the conversations, especially when we are in a, you know, kind of multidisciplinary field where we're bringing together practitioners and planners and counselors and researchers, military members, yeah, all these people, you know, all different perspectives, Mm -hmm. but all with the same goal of financial wellness and financial well-being for individuals and a family. So making those connections is really, really important. So Emily, is there anything else you want to add? I'm just making sure that I have asked all my questions. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add about, you know, financial transparency or like what's next for you or like where you want this to go? Like, you know, I think that that's important for our listeners here too. Yeah. I think the only thing, or one of the things I would want to add is as you're engaging in these discussions, it's going to potentially be really tough. And so lead with grace and kindness and openness. And maybe this does bring to the surface that we have a lot of work to do on our relationship financially. Maybe we're doing really well and let's celebrate that. Or maybe we really are misaligned on some core values and we need to reassess that in some way. I think as we're starting these conversations, make sure that you are really able to, again, kind of have this grace with yourself and with your partner. That's going to be really important as we get into potentially conflictual conversations. Um, with, With future endeavors, I'm really excited to kind of go backwards and look at financial socialization and looking at trust and that power, because if we can have a better understanding of those variables, we can better inform financial communication going forward and really start to understand, you know, why would somebody mark very likely uh, to lie to a partner to not disclose a financial purchase? We know that there are inherent values and other things lying there that we really need to, to deep dive into that to continue pushing this research forward. Let me other, let me ask you just a follow-up question. Yeah. I, you know, what do you think about couples who have maybe not necessarily separate bank accounts, but like money that's earmarked for like whatever purchases, like, do you, you think that it's a good piece to use or it's just kind of like, it depends on the couple or just curious. Yeah. 
I think with all money, the answer is it depends, but I'll give some, True. <laughs> True. <laughs> I'll give some suggestions or let's just call them rather opinions because this is not something that I've personally done research on. So I just want to make sure that I'm not citing this as any type of, oh, yeah. uh, you know, subject matter expert. Here's what I think is important based off of the research that I've done. This, this point of autonomy and independence is really important in relationships. And I say that in regard to finances, as well as our, our own personal interest and our relationships with others, it's really important to maintain a sense of self. Finances can be one way that we feel limited in being able to do that. So True. previous research has shown that joint, joint accounts, uh, joint goals specifically, are what give us this togetherness mm-hmm. in our relationship that we're both working towards the same thing. And the joint, um, the joint accounts can also help with some of that transparency piece. However, in keeping the importance of this autonomy and independence alive and at the forefront, it may be important to have a spending account that we each get a deposit X amount of dollars to, or we only keep certain amount of money in there, whatever that protocol is that you put in mm-hmm. place. The partner, the individual gets to spend from that account, no questions asked. So if something's silly to my partner, but I think it's really important, I don't have to go through that conversation because we've set this account aside and it's mine and they have theirs and that's okay. I think that that can make some people uncomfortable because it could trip up this transparency piece again, that they have a separate account. Yeah. So the trust needs to be there. A lot of the other things, the trust and um, the proper communication and boundary management, all of those things. But I think it could help with that limiting feeling of I have to check all things with my partner. Mm. And that may be be exhausting, right? You know, I just want to make a simple purchase and not have to have the conversation every single time. So it may be appropriate for some couples. Well, I think it just goes back to what we were talking about earlier, like that. 100% financial transparency may not be the best choice for every couple, right? And I think that's where I I was kind of heading towards, like, you know, if you have a separate account or separate monies or whatever it may be, you know, that that's my opportunity to do something maybe nice for my partners, nice for my child, nice for my friend, you know, and I don't have to be asked about it. So um, I, I get a lot of mom friends who ask me questions about it. And I just this is like, that's where this was heading. Like in my brain, it was like, okay, well, if we can't have 100% financial transparency, is this a tool that we could use to not only feel independent and autonomous, you know, and autonomous, but also have that trust with my spouse and know that whatever money's in that account, I'm not overspending it. It's there, but we can use it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story and this can be you know, edited, but, um, this is one of the light bulb moments that I had when it came to financial transparency and it is not meant to be, um, controversial to say that we don't need a hundred percent transparency at all times. It's simply again, to bring up the conversation of some type of independence within our relationship. But I was meeting with a couple And they had done a lot of work to get their financial lifestyle to the point that they wanted it at. They had made a lot of sacrifices. They had a very rigid budget in place. 
And they had the joint goal of being able to buy an additional home and, and other items that they really wanted for their family. One partner within that relationship felt as though they needed to keep money to the side because they were afraid of the implications of spending money from the family account, if you will. So that they, makes sense. they needed the, um, the wife in this relationship. She was suggesting, hey, why don't you go buy X, Y, and Z? We've got the money for it. It's okay. And she said, I'd been telling them for six months to go buy this. In fact, it was a lawnmower. Um, that, oh. <laughs> you know, it was something that it was for the family. It wasn't even this really know, kind of self-oriented thing. And he would not do it. They had picked it out. She had said she'd okayed it. It came up that he had really this mindset of, I want to make sure that my family is financially okay, that he couldn't pull away and make some of the purchases because they had made a deep commitment to it. And he really believed in it, which is admirable. But at the same time, it did almost kind of stunted him from being able to make any other purchases outside of Mm -hmm. paying these bills and doing other things. He ended up doing some contracting work on the side and was paid in cash, kept the cash and kept it from his significant other, from his wife. And he told her about it. He said, Hey, I have this private account and it's, you know, the money from, from the contracting. And he bought himself, I don't know, maybe a guitar or something that was a little more personal. Mm -hmm. And he said, I was just terrified to tell you because I didn't want to disrupt all of the work that we had done. And this was one way he could make the purchase and feel okay about it. This is where the light bulb moment came that he wasn't trying to do anything with ill intent. He was actually trying to not disrupt the family, you know, goals and protocols that they put in place. So maybe it is important to have the side account with proper communication and alignment. Yeah, because I feel like if you don't have, again, it comes down to this this feud idea I have. Like, if you don't have those proper trust protocols, things in place, it's going to create conflict. Um, and whether that, again, that's a dollar amount or like there's just an account that, whether it continues to grow money or you put money in it every month or whatever it is, like whatever I do with that money, it's mine and I can, and it's okay. And we've agreed on it. So. Yeah. I think just putting those protocols in place is important. So, Yeah. And it may work for some couples and it may not work for others, you know, and that's important. It's all, it's personal finance, Definitely. personal finance. <laughs> <laughs> you and I know that better than any, like anyone else, you know, with our degrees and our experiences. Um, so Emily, I just want to tell you, thank you for being on our podcast, being our first guest. I just want to say quickly that you know, Emily is a two-time award winner from AFCBE. She did win um, Best Poster a few years ago. And then this year, she won Best Journal Article from AFCBE. So definitely, definitely great research coming from my best friend, Emily. And, um, you know, if you're interested in learning more about it or, you know, even reading her research, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. And thank you, Emily, for being on. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time and I'm happy to have any future conversations with with listeners or just those who are interested in continuing on some of the points that we discussed today. So thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Until next time. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to Family Financial Feuds. If you'd like to learn more about the educators, Extension in Illinois, or just personal finance in general, you can check us out on the web at www.retirewell.illinois.edu.